0: Hmm.
1: Recorded live. Well, hello. Once again, this is Michael Adams. This is up with the truth of my journey, sign it. It is uh, part two of uh, Happy Refor- Reformation Day. <clears throat> part one turned out to go down a different direction than I thought it was going to go. I had a chance to have a conversation with uh, Walt Stickles from Grand Is Unexposed. That was cool. That was very cool. So, I think we'll talk a little bit about. Uh, we'll start with the uh, five central teachings of the Protestant Reformation. What does it mean to be Protestant? What do you protesting against? There's five things, major teachings that the reformers, by which they distinguished. Their beliefs from those of the Roman Catholic Church. Their day, uh, I affirm all five of those these beliefs because I think they reflect the Bible's teachings. <clears throat> Number one, Sola Scripta. The Bible alone, Scripture alone, speaks authority and it speaks to all believers independently of church leaders and councils. Human interpretation is so called spokesman of God. To sola uh, grata, grace alone, it is only by unmerited favor of God that Christ went to the cross and paid the price for man's salvation. Man is by nature depraved. He has no virtue that commends him to God Therefore, God's grace to him is truly undeserved and amazing. God's grace alone has the power to draw people to Himself. Number three, sola fide, faith alone. F-I-D. Sola fide. The are. Faith alone, only total righteousness is acceptable to God, and that is found in Christ, not us. Man can only accept Christ's work by placing his trust in him. Man is justified by faith alone in the finished work of Christ, not by any works of his own. Number four, sola Christus, Christ alone. Salvation is accomplished by Christ alone. Mediated by Christ alone, not by angels, saints, relics, sacraments, priests, teachers, churches, anyone or anything else. Christ alone was the perfect Savior, and He alone is the perfect Prophet, Priest, and King. Soli Deo Gloria, or Deo Gloria, to God alone by... Let me try this again. To collect, that God alone be glory. <laughs> God should be thanked. Thank you, God. All praise and glory go to you, Heavenly Father. And give him full credit for his sovereign grace, his spiritual and physical provision. Theology should be God-centered, not man-centered. God should he put in his place and humans in theirs. Our efforts should not elevate or celebrate men but God. We should bring him glory in our work, in our homes, in our play. He, not we, should be the center of all things. And that way you find that in the information box? Yeah. EPM.org, and then not uh, supporting the site, it just found a site that had five basic tenets of the process. I don't think it was neglected in that was the protest part. And the protest part was that protest uh, protesting against the papacy, uh, the Vatican, all the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, unfortunately. All the daughter churches. Not soon after the founding of these different religions or organizations like the Lutheran Church or Methodist, etc., went back into the arms of Rome. This is the historical record and the consequences that we're facing now. Why, pretty much outside of a few of us, the Protestant or the protest. is uh, done by very few. Connections between Halloween and Reformation Day. This is Christianity.com. Another site that I don't endorse, but it goes through this basic uh, outline of Halloween, All Saints Day, All Souls Day. It's Reformation Day, It turns out to be the same day as Halloween. I imagine Lucifer or Satan and his minions and the Jesuits in Rome did that deliberately. You think? There is a curious connection between Halloween and Reformation Day. It's more than just proximity on the calendar. Why did Martin Luther nail his famous 95 thesis to the Wittenberg Church? Door in October 31st, 1517, he was confronted to religious observances that promoted false saintliness and exploited people's fear of judgment and purgatory. Halloween. October 31st, celebrated millions each year with costumes and candy. Halloween's deepest roots are dedicatedly, decidedly, pagan despite its Christianized name. Its origin is Celtic, some say or Druid or whatever, I don't know. It has to do with summer sacrifices to appease this uh, Samhain, Samhain, Lord of Death and Evil Spirits. Those doing the pagan rituals believe that Samhain sent evil spirits abroad to attack humans. Who could escape only by assuming disguises and looking like evil spirits themselves? Christians tried to confront these pagan rituals or rites by offering a Christian alternative, All Hallows Day, that celebrates the lives of faithful Christian saints on November 1st. In medieval England, the, f- the festival was known as All, Hallow- All Hallows, and f- the name Halloween, All Hallows Eve preceding Eve. All Saints Day, or All Hallows Day, uh, November 1st, was celebrated on May 13th. Uh, nine o or six o nine when Pope Boniface the Fourth dedicated the pantheon of in Rome to the Virgin Mary. the date was later changed to November first by Pope Gregory III Third, who dedicated a chapel in honor of all of all the saints in the Vatican basilica and eight thirty seven Pope Gregory IV, this is 827 to 844, I guess is when he was the Pope, ordered all church-wide observance. Its origin lies earlier in a common uh, commemoration comm- of Christian martyrs. Over time, these celebrations came to include not only martyrs but all saints during the reformation the protestant churches came to understand saints in the new testament usage as including all believers and reinterpreted the feast of all saints to celebrate the unity of the entire church all souls day so we have three days of celebrations don't we All Souls Day, or Day of the Dead, is normally celebrated primarily by Roman Catholics on the November 2nd. This is a day dedicated to prayer and almsgiving and memory of the ancestors who have died. People pray for souls of the dead in an effort to hasten their transition from purgatory to heaven by being purged and cleansed from their sins. Reformation Day, October 31st, com- commemorates Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517. This act triggered the Reformation as they were immediately translated and distributed across Germany. And in a matter of weeks, the Protestant Reformation was a dis- rediscovery. Of the doctrine of justification, that is, salvation by grace alone. Uh, this is Galatians 2:21, 20, through faith alone and Christ alone. It was also the protest against the corruption of the Catholic Church. The century before the Reformation was marked by widespread dismay with the corruption of the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church and with his false doctrines, uh, biblical illiteracy, and superstition. M- monks, priests, bishops, and popes in Rome taught unbiblical doctrines, like the selling of indulgences, the treasury of merit, purgatory, salvation through good works, etc. So, what I was thinking of doing, and I know it might be... <clears throat> not the most appropriate way to celebrate uh, Reformation Day, but was to go and listen to mm, this is Walter V's lecture from the Rekindling of the Reformation, uh, the Jesuits and the Counter-Reformation, Part 1 and 2. It's very long. Each episode is a little under two hours. I don't know if we'll be able to accomplish it's playing both parts of this recording. But I think we should deal with what we have been going through as, a, as the world as a whole. Not just Protestants, uh, Bible-believing Christians, but uh, the whole world is under the spell of Rome and the Jesuits. That we are all suffering from the strong delusion caused by the Reformation, by all the false teachings coming out of Rome, the Jesuits, and their um, subordinates, and that uh, we probably should deal with this once again. Now, I know in this show, I deal with all the problems all the time, but the the answer is very simple, and I just read it to you. In particular, the five teachings of the Protestant Reformation, along with protesting against the heresy of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, its daughter churches like Islam, all the other false religions out there that she embraces, she being the Jesuits in Rome. If you look at the ecumenical movement, it includes all those except uh, Bible-believing Christians, at the end of the day. And even all those if we believe, once again, what was talked about in the first show about the Church of Guidestones, the majority of them will be eliminated and their posterity, denying them ever the opportunity of hearing the gospel and living this adventure, this classroom situation of life here in this world, Earth. Is what um, I feel at this point is flat and I don't see any contradictions with the word of God and or with my own senses my own observations and others' observations of others actually it's a very popular stance I really don't care Anyways, so we'll listen to this. Once again, I don't agree with the Sabbatarian approach. so I've shared now several times on the show and with Dave Nicaio's teachings and others, and that the Sabbath in the Old Testament was based on the lunar solar calendar and not the Gregorian calendar that we currently and have been living under for a thousand plus years. Um, So, because of that, Saturday, Sunday, have nothing to do with the actual word of God. And if you're really going to be an inherent of the Sabbath, you need to, based on the lunar calendar, as the dead dwellers of Israel at the time did. Logically, they would. Um, Not only that, well, we also look at what the Sabbath day actually starts on. It doesn't start on a Friday night at dark. It actually starts when the day starts. Anyways, you can certainly, going back in the archives, look at that, especially the latest one that I did
0: about the Sabbath day. Adventist. What was that one?
1: did a lot of things about Yeah, abomination a seventh day uh, uh seventh day abomination by edifying others so and if you want to do that do do it. Just remember you're not doing it according to the scriptures. You just do it to your own will. Want God to recognize it? I don't know. One thing I do know is I don't recognize it. The word God doesn't recognize it. I don't know why you would recognize it. If you do it, you do it. It's where you're not more of a Christian than anybody else. But saying that, I just want you – the reason I'm saying that is because, um, well, they use seductively and deceitfully these lectures from Walter Vith to try to convince people to join the church. And, um, but saying that as well, what you'll find with these lectures, many of them are literally right on the money very s- sneaky way of going about it as far as the Jesuits, the counter-reformation, that if anybody's going to actually hear about the Reformation, the counter-reformation, the Jesuits and their involvement in their lives, they're going to have to hear from a Seventh day Adventist, like Walter Fieth. I think he's a real blessing to us all. I don't have to grieve anything the man says. But the big picture, especially when it comes to the Jesuits, the counter-reformation, Uh, history, and his exposure to the satanic system that we all live under, he does a really good job. And um, you take it or leave it. Do what you want with it. As for me, we're going to listen to it. Anybody who does join me, um, or will join us later, because it uh, is a very powerful message. Once again, uh, if you want to, to watch it yourself for more impact, uh, it will be called uh, The Jesuits and the Counter-Reformation, Part 1 and Part 2, Kindling the Reformation, by Walter Peace. So we'll try it out. Sorry for uh, once again all the rough, rustling. And um, I really did think it would be worth any people's time to listen to it. I do have all these other things I want to get, deal with, but apparently I'm being led towards something else. And here we go.
0: And welcome to those watching on the internet. Tonight is a, what do you call this kind of topic? A hot topic or something like that? But fortunately it's only part one. There is still a part two. Now the topic sounds ominous, it's the Jesuits and the counter-reformation. And I'm not going to deal with the political intrigues and the oaths and all of these issues, because I've dealt with that. You will find it all in the first series. We're going to look at the spiritual aspects. And these are all the more serious, because they are all the more dangerous. And I would like to venture so far as to say that the whole world, has been captivated by this intrigue. And that what we are going to speak about in the next two lectures affects every single one of us, whether we know it or whether we don't know it. It is not my intention to hurt anyone's feelings. It's my intention to show where these things lead to and where they come from, and why some of them are not biblical. And that's not an easy thing to do, because some people are sincerely involved in something, and really honestly believe that what they are doing is right, when in fact they have been deceived. Doesn't the Bible say that the greatest problem or the first principle of the last days will be deception. So we need to know where this all comes from, where it's all leading, and how does it affect me personally in the time that we are living in. Protestantism is not solely the outcome of human progress. It is no mere principle of perfectibility inherent in humanity. And ranking is one of its native powers, in virtue of which, when society becomes corrupt, it can purify itself. And when it is arrested in its course by some external force or stops from exhaustion, it can recruit its energies and set forward anew on its path. It is neither the product of the individual reason, nor the result of the joint thoughts and energies of the species. Protestantism is a principle which has its origins outside human society. It is a divine graft on the intellectual and moral nature of man, whereby new vitalities and forces are introduced into it. And the human stem yields henceforth a nobler fruit. It is the descent of heaven-born influence, which allies itself with all the instincts and powers of the individual, with all the laws and cravings of society, and which quickening both the individual and the social being into a new life and directing their efforts to nobler objects, permits the highest development of which humanity is capable and the fullest possible accomplishment of all its grand ends. In a word... Protestantism is revived Christianity. Isn't that well put? I like the way these writers wrote. This comes from the history of Protestantism by Reverend Wiley. And it says, this is not based on some reason. No fanciful thing that man has developed and thought up and based on his reasoning capacities and natural law this is a heavenly graph this is something from above and not something from beneath now if we want to know about the Jesuits we have to go back into history and the Jesuits have probably caused more turmoil on the planet than any other organization ever known to man They have been banned by virtually every single country where they have ever operated, including the Catholic ones. There are very few that didn't ban the Jesuits, and they would always come back and pick up the pieces of a country that lay destroyed and rising after they dared to cross this organization. The Jesuits, throughout Christendom, Protestantism was menaced by formidable foes. I'm going to read you quite a few quotes tonight. The first triumphs of the Reformation passed. Rome summoned new forces hoping to accomplish its destruction. At this time, the order of the Jesuits was created the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. Cut off from earthly ties and human interests, dead to the claims of natural affection, reason and conscience wholly silenced they, know, they knew no who no tie but that of their order and no duty but to extend its power the gospel of Christ had enabled its adherents to meet danger and endure suffering undismayed by cold, hunger, toil and poverty to uphold the banner of truth in the face of the rack the dungeon the stake. To combat these forces, Jesuitism inspired its followers with a fanaticism that enabled them to endure like dangers and to oppose to the power of truth all the weapons of deception. There was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume vowed to perpetual poverty and humility. It was their studied aim to secure wealth and power to be devoted to the overthrow of Protestantism and to reestablishment of the papal supremacy. When appearing as members of their order, they wore the garb of sanctity, visiting prisons, hospitals, ministering to the sick and the poor, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus who went about doing good. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were often concealed. It was a fundamental principle of the order that the end justifies the means. By this code, lying, theft, perjury, assassination were not only pardonable but commendable. When they served the interests of the church, under various disguises, the Jesuits worked their way into offices of state, climbing up to be counselors of kings and shaping the policies of nations. This comes from that classic great controversy. And history has borne it out. Here is a quote from 1816 of John Adams, writing to President Jefferson, and he says, Shall we not have regular swarms of them here? In as many disguises as only a king of the gypsies can assume. Dressed as painters, publishers, writers, and schoolmasters, if ever there was a body of men who merited eternal damnation on earth and in hell, it is this society of Loyalus. That's pretty straight, isn't it? This is history. This is history, and you can check the line through history and see the blood that flowed. And who was always behind it? The Jesuits. Now one of their main aims is to replace this Protestant absolute where the Bible and the Bible alone is authority and salvation is by Christ and Christ alone with this policy that Salvation has to go through the system. So how do you replace moral absolutes with the relativism? This is one of their objects. This is their aim. Hebrews 12, 25 to 28. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not to refuse him that spoke on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. We need to be grounded in Christ. We dare not. We dare not be sidelined into assuming something else. His voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. I believe with all my heart that Christianity is in the shaking period. Wherefore we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Choice. Here's a choice to be made. Bear in mind that it is none but God that can hold an argument with Satan. There's too much presumption in the world. Too many people marching around commanding commanding Satan to do this, commanding Satan to do that. Not even Gabriel could stand against him without calling the one who is what God is, Michael, to come to his aid. How much less we, what presumption we have in the world today, it's unbelievable. Martin Luther versus Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order. They were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. And yet they were so totally different. Luther's appeal was to submit the conscience directly to God through the word. And Loyola's drive was to submit the conscience to the papacy. Here was the distinction. Ignatian spirituality was to be achieved through spiritual exercises by substituting imagination and encounter theology for the reality of faith. He found another way of guaranteeing a spiritual experience which was no longer based on faith, but on the actual substance. Here is a quote from Del Brugine, the history of the Reformation of the 16th century, probably one of the best exposés on the Reformation ever written. It's huge. Inigo, it's another name for or short version of Ignatius Loyola, and uh, the author writes, Inigo, instead of feeling that his remorse was sent to drive him to the foot of the cross, persuaded himself that these inward reproaches proceeded not from God, but from the devil, and resolved never more to think of his sins, to erase them from his memory and bury them in eternal oblivion. Both Martin Luther and Inigo had this sense of guilt. Both of them chastised themselves to get rid of it. Martin Luther made the great discovery that just shall live by faith. And Inigo did not. Luther turned towards Christ. Loyola fell upon himself. Visions came here long to confirm Inigo in the convictions at which he had arrived. Inigo did not seek truth in the Holy Scriptures, but imagined in their place immediate communication with the spirits. Luther, on taking his doctor's degree, had pledged his oath to the Holy Scripture. Loola, at his time, bound himself to dreams and visions, and chimerical apparitions became the principle of his life and his faith. Two directions. The one faith-based. The Lord said it, and therefore it is so so. If you repent, I will wash you whiter than snow. I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. And see, we are doing a new thing. That's what the word says. The devil says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. The Lord does not lie. By faith, I accept forgiveness in Christ, whether I feel it or not. Enigo said, I want to feel it. I want to feel accepted. I want to know that I can talk with him. I will concentrate all my energy to communicate directly. And before long, he was communicating directly. But with whom? With whom? Luther declared, It is a light thing to die for the word, since the word that was made flesh has himself died. If we die with him, we shall live with him. And passing through that which he has passed through before us, we shall be where he is and dwell with him forever. Faith. Statement. No need for any strange experience. At the Diet of Worms, he said, Since your most serene majesty and the princess require a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give you one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as noonday that they have often fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from the Holy Scriptures or by God reason, if I am not satisfied by the very text that I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to the word of, to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be right for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I take my stand, I cannot do otherwise. God be my help. amen that same historical source. So here were two total opposites. It's written, and therefore I believe it, I accept it by faith, Christ said so, it is so. Done deal. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? Do I have to prove my relationship with someone else? Do I have to prove every day that there's a relationship going in a marriage. Do I have to prove how do I prove that I love someone? If I say it, it must be accepted. By faith? Here is Inigo kneeling before the Pope, receiving his letters, and all of these things happened more than 400 years ago. The Society of Jesus first constituted in the chapel of Notre-Dame, montre 1534. Now in the chapel of the Sacred Heart in Paris. And there it is. It's quite a magnificent edifice. You're not allowed to take any pictures inside, but it says nothing about outside. So let me take you there and let's have a look at what we can see on the outside. Fascinating place. They have all these magnificent statues and they have these two interesting little engravings here on the building. The first one is the mother hen. Now it's interesting, you must understand their mindset. Who is the mother according to Catholicism? The church, yes. Matthew twenty three thirty seven says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not? Rome says, The church is the mother, and Christ is set aside. Matthew fifteen verse nine on the other side here they have the this mythical bird, this pelican, feeding its young with its own flesh. Matthew 59 says, In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. This is the bloodless sacrifice, the offering of the flesh. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. No, Catholicism says we need works and faith for salvation. Protestantism says we need faith. Works are a consequence, not a means to salvation. So if you are a Christian, you will have good works because you are impelled by the love of Christ to do good works. But you do not do the good works to get brownie points in order to get a higher status or even to go to heaven. So there's a subtle difference here between the two. Catholicism has them both embodied. Now that's a history. And it is a bloody history. When you go through all the mega wars, the 30-year wars, the massacres of Europe, all the inquisitional activities, even amongst themselves, they had so many arguments when the Inquisition was passed from one order to the other and taken away from the Jesuits. who the poor Dominicans. They were slaughtered. And even after that, they will use it to their advantage and say, Look, even Catholic orders suffered, so it couldn't have been us. Are the Jesuits still relevant? Do they still have a role to play today? Well, in this year, we had this interesting election of a new general for the first time in history, a Jesuit general retired before he was forced to retire by his dead. And the new Jesuit general is Father Adolfo Nicolas from 2008, and here are the Jesuit electors. These are the inner core of the Jesuit order. And it's interesting to read this extract of a letter that Pope Benedict sent to the Jesuits just prior to this new election of this general. So here is the present pope writing to them. And he writes, I too gladly wish to take this opportunity of a general congregation to bring such a contribution to light which might be of encouragement for you and a stimulus to implement Ever better the ideal of the society. Jesuits go and work to get society to the level where we want it. In full fidelity with the magisterium of the church, such as described in the following formula, which is well familiar to you, to serve as a soldier of God beneath the banner of cross and to serve the Lord alone and the church his spouse under the Roman pontiff, the vicar of Christ on earth. Jesus, that's your job. And then he quotes an apostolic letter from 1515. He says, one treats here of a peculiar fidelity confirmed also by not a few amongst you in vow vow of immediate obedience to the successor of Peter, perinde a cadaver. Good grief. This is Pope Benedict writing. Quoting, and and he says to them, your obedience to me ...must be as the obedience of a corpse. Perinde a cadaver, like a corpse. You will have no mind of your own. Whatever is said, you will do. Blind obedience. The church has even more need today... ...of this fidelity of yours... ...which constitutes a distinctive sign of your order. In this era, era which warns of the urgency... ...of transmitting in an integral manner to our contemporaries, distracted by many discordant voices. Jesuits, I need you now more than ever, and I need your blind obedience. Is that what he's saying? That's exactly what he's saying before the vote took place. And here he is with the inner call, the electors of the Jesuit order, sitting in the front. He's a man in white, And they, the men in black. Fascinating. How does he feel about their institutions of learning? This is the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, the most prestigious Catholic Jesuit university in the world. And what did Pope Benedict have to say about this institution? He says, once again, the Pope entrusts this university to you. A work so important for the universal church and for so many particular churches. (laughs) It has always been a priority amongst the apostolic priorities of the Society of Jesus. Here is your entering wedge. This work is for the church and for all
1: the others.
0: Well, let's have a look at how we shall proceed, and how they have managed to turn Protestantism into something which does not even resemble primitive Protestantism. Here is Adolfo Nicolas, the new Jesuit general, shaking hands with Peter Hans Kolbenbach, the previous general, and it says, Peter... Father Adolfo Nicolás of Spain, the newly elected Superior General of the Society of Jesus, celebrates his first Mass at the head of the Jesuits at the Church of Jesus, January 20, 2008. So this general, the previous general, Peter Hans Hans Kolbenbach, is the first general in history to be permitted to resign. And here he has been sworn in Made available by the Jesuit Order Press Office, Spanish Reverend Adolfo Nicolas swears in as the Superior General of the Jesuit Roman Catholic Order during their 35th General Congregation in Rome's Holy Spirit and Sassia Church, January 19, 2008. The General of the Jesuits is always known as the Black Pope because he wears black. And the white Pope is is the Pope, who is the external, how do I put this, the external picture of the papacy. This is the yin-yang, the black and the white squares, the knowledge of good and evil. So the new general meets with the pontiff, Rome, 28 January 2008. And this is Catholic World News. Jesuit officials released a statement after the meeting saying that the conversation between Father Nicholas and the Pope had been warm and friendly. And they reaffirm his personal respect for the vicarous Christ as well as the esteem of the whole society of Jesus. So this is all being made public. So first you have this letter reminding them of their affiliation and now you have the confirmation. According to the statement from the Jesuit superior, Benedict said that he was pleased to know that the general congregation of the order which continues its meeting in Rome this week will reflect on the message that the pontiff sent to the participants as the general congregation began. So here they are together. To reaffirm in the spirit of St. Ignatius Its own total adhesion to Catholic doctrine, in particular on those neurologic points concerning the mind, which today are strongly attacked by secular culture. So this order, is it dead, yes or no? definitely not dead this is the largest order in the Roman Catholic Church this is the most powerful order in the Roman Catholic Church it is a military order it has a general at its head and all other orders have to subscribe to it even the great orders of the Malta. Pope Ratzinger to the Jesuits 21 February 2008. Now I want you to listen carefully what this Pope wrote and here's the Latin text for those who would like to dispute this. Come comes straight off their own uh, webpage, this Latin text. Here it is translated for you. For this I have invited you today to also reflect in order to find again a sense of fuller obedience to the successor of Peter so that it does not only involve the cases of sending you on missions to far lands, but also in the most genuine, ignited spirit of feeling with the church and in the church, to love and to serve the vicar of Christ on earth, with that effective and effective devotion that must make of you the precious and irreplaceable collaborators, in the service of the universal church. That's powerful. So the duty is to love and to serve. What does the Bible say? What is our duty? To love and to serve the Lord God with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our mind. Here we have a totally different order. Here we have a human being taking the place of Christ being served as though he were Christ. Now the whole Reformation separated on these issues from the Roman Catholic Church. And finally, after much bloodshed, the Council of Trent came together, and that was championed by the Jesuits. This is the Council of Trent conclave, and... uh, Unfortunately, Martin Luther was already dead when the Council of Trent took place. And my question is this. The Vatican II Council, which we read about, which started in 1965, and which suddenly opened the doors to all Christian communities to be acceptable again, because before that date, it was said that there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. You can only be saved as a Roman Catholic. That's why I became an atheist. It's true. Because my mother was a Protestant. She was Lutheran. And she died when I was 12 years old. And she took four years in dying. And in those four years, in my religious instruction, I was told repeatedly that I was to hell. And I hated God. And I rejected him. But after 1965, suddenly she was okay.